Please pray with me, Lord Jesus. God, we pray that as we dive into your word today, God, that you would show up, that we would see you, we would be aware of your presence. Wherever we are at right now, God, if we're in our own living room, if we're here in your house, God, if we're driving in our car right now, God, would we see that you are present and loving and for us and with us here this morning, God. Guide this time that we have. In your name we pray, amen. Well, hey, today I get the honor of wrapping up the series that we have been in for the last five weeks called Promises, okay, looking at the biblical promises of God, not the ones that we make to him, but the ones that he makes to us. The promises of God are things that we can put our weight down on. We can put our faith in. We can build our lives around. And so it's really important for us to be able to differentiate between actual promises from God and just some good advice or things that might make us feel better. That's what we're going to talk about today. Well, like I said earlier, my name is Mike McAvoy, and I'm the director of university ministries here at UPC. And besides uh, loving college students and getting the chance to work with college students, uh, there are a couple things about me that are important for you to know, probably. Number one is that I love my family. Okay, I brought a picture of them today just so you could catch up on the growth of my children and where they're at, okay? This is last weekend at the pumpkin patch. It's October in Seattle. If you don't go to a pumpkin patch with your family, well... You got to at least post a photo about it. Um, that's my wife, Rachel. We've been married for 11 years now. Um, and then two of our daughters there. I'm holding Kyrie, who's about 28 months old, and Jojo, who uh, is about 21 months old. And uh, we love being able to, to raise them. Developmentally, where they are at right now, there's a new thing going on in the last couple weeks. And that is that they are starting to learn how to team up to like scheme against us a little bit. It's kind of fun, but also it's a little scary. Okay, they're starting to figure out that if they work as a team, they actually might have an advantage. In fact, I brought a little video, just we don't have UPC kids today. So I thought I'll, I'll bring a little video of my kids so that you can see what's going on in their world right now as the two of them are teaching each other how to climb in and out of their cribs together. This is from like a week ago. This is, this is new. They're, they're starting to climb in and out, which is not as fun as you would think. <laughs> Climbing in is not so dangerous, but when they start climbing out, there are some loud noises at night. All right, that's probably good with that. That's what the two of them look like. So there's a little... Uh, you know, there's a little insight into the joys uh, that I get to, to have in my life uh, on a daily basis. Another thing you should know about me is that I'm really competitive. Okay, I like to win at big things and I like to win at little things in my life. Okay, about seven or eight years ago, it got really popular to get Fitbits, okay, and start to see step counters, okay, and start to see how many steps you could get in your day. We started tracking our steps because somebody said that 10,000 steps was the sign of health in our life. And so when that happened, my wife, Rachel, and I, we both got the Fitbits, but we couldn't afford the actual ones. So we bought the very cheapest ones they sold on Amazon for $14 each. Yes, absolutely. The problem with those, those uh, Fitbits or whatever the, the actual brand was is they would only count the steps if your arm was swinging super accurately. 
Okay, super accurate. I mean, if you walked like this, you got no credit for your steps during the day. So Rach and I would both wear them on our left arms and we would have this contest. We basically wanted to beat each other each day and how many steps we can get. I see some head nods. You've probably been, you know, trying to beat somebody in the step count in your own life. Well, we used to lead to all kinds of arguments because only your left arm swing would help you. So we used to fight over when we held hands and walked, who got to hold the right hand. <laughs> So she would constantly be jumping over on this side of me to hold this hand. And it was a hard, I didn't win that fight very often. Okay, another thing that would happen is when we go to the grocery store, she would always make me push the cart because if you pushed a grocery cart like this, you got zero credit for your steps. So something happened. Okay, the evolution was that I learned how to push the grocery cart with one arm. And we would be going around Costco or anyone else, even the big Costco carts. I learned how to maneuver with just my right arm, this giant cart, so that I could keep my left arm swinging the whole time. That was the only way that I got credit for working out. Well, something happened over time where I became so used to pushing with my right arm or holding right hand, even if we'd hold hands, I had to swing my arm in the middle, but I became so used to associating, okay, my left arm swing with uh, the fitness that I was encountering and that I, I, I started to think, I'm not even getting any exercise in my day if my left arm isn't swinging. Where even now, okay, I decided to go with the Apple Watch finally um, this year, which is so good, it does not need you to swing your arm. But there is something that I do. When I push the stroller, with my kids now, okay, I start pushing it, and there's something in my brain, I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden, I take one hand off, and I start to swing my left arm and push both my kids in a stroller with just my right arm. I've been so conditioned that somehow my left arm swinging is tied in to my physical health that it's almost difficult for me to separate the two right now even though they have no association with each other. You know, in the same way, one of the things that makes me nervous is there, that there are some things out there that are not actually promises from God. But because we have been associating them with God for so long, that something in us has just tied them in to the things that we believe are words from God. You know, if you know anything about my story, okay, you know that three and a half years ago, we were pregnant with our first daughter when we went into the hospital at 28 weeks because her kidneys weren't working. For five weeks, we were in Swedish hospital praying and resting and getting the best possible treatment for her, giving her the best chance to live. And I mean praying. I never prayed like this in my life. And we have prayer lists and anybody that was willing to get on their knees, we let them know, please go pray. We were emailing and texting everyone we could. Pray for us. You know, at 33 weeks she was born and, and uh, if you don't know our story, our first daughter didn't, didn't live very long. And that was really hard for me, and, and it was hard for a number of reasons, because losing a child or losing any loved one in our life is always really difficult. But it was also hard, and sometimes is hard, to do a job like this one, because it has made it, it's made it difficult at times to trust God. And in the other pain, one of the reasons why it's so hard is because I really believed, I really believed 
I don't know why, I really believe God was gonna heal our daughter. And I don't know if it was because, you know, I thought, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, or there's lots of people praying for us, or I've just tried to live a really good life that I really thought he would come through. And, and so when he did it, I felt really let down. Now, sometimes God does heal. But the promise of God is not that he will heal every time somebody's sick. And I know some of y'all are like me and over time have come to believe that, that maybe if we follow God and we, and we prayed a lot and we read the Bible that life would get easier or we'd find the perfect spouse or have fewer problems in our life or even that our loved ones would escape harm because of that. And when those things haven't happened, it's left us disappointed and wondering if God really cares. But some of those promises aren't actually promises from God. And some of us are holding God accountable for promises he never actually made. It's why we study the word of God is so that we don't go around believing or even making false promises to others. When we tell someone how to find life in Jesus, we want to actually show them how that life can be found. Okay, and that's why I've loved this series and I'm excited to, to preach God's word today, focusing on a promise directly from the mouth of Jesus. And so we turn to the text to lead us today. And if you are able, I'd ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word today. It can be found in the, in the book of John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 18 and 19. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, it is page 877. And if you would like, please read along with me, starting in chapter 14, verse 18, when Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Because I live, you also will live. Before we break down exactly what this promise could mean for us, I want to spend a little time helping us to understand the situation that Jesus and his disciples are in. Okay, John 13 through 17 is known as the upper room discourse. Okay, this gathering uh, for these words from Jesus, this is not a public meeting. Okay, this is a private meal. This is the most intimate setting, the most intimate and personal of the discourses that Jesus gives. This is family business time. Okay, this is like when the parents sit the family down and say, we have some really tough information. We're getting a divorce and things are going to be different. This is when, this is when the dad sits the family down and says, we have, we have hard news. You know, I have a, a disease and, and, and there's no cure and, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. Jesus has just told them that he is going to die. This is not what they expected. Jesus has just told Judas that he will betray him. Jesus has just told Peter that he will deny him. This is pretty heavy stuff. 
This is one big conversation. And the disciples at this point are pretty nervous. I'm guessing pretty upset. Jesus is telling them he's leaving and that everything is going to change. Because currently, everything for them depends on the physical presence of Jesus being with them. They have left their jobs. They have left their family. They have left any comfort or security of their lives. He is their rabbi, their leader, their father. They've left to be united with Jesus. And now he's going to die? This is the meeting that changes everything. After this, nothing is going to go back to the way it was. Emotions at this point have to involve disappointment, confusion, sadness, and I'm guessing a little anger. Angry, wondering if Jesus has overpromised and is about to underdeliver. Jesus, I've left my life. I've left everything that's comfortable for me. I've left my family. I've left my work to follow you. This is my life. And now you're leaving us? Jesus, you do know that this puts us in pretty big danger with the Roman soldiers who knew, they know that we've been with you. You're kind of leaving us out here. It's a hopeless feeling. The literal usage of the word orphans by Jesus in here is actually an incredibly appropriate word to use. Because I want you to picture the hopelessness that is found in being an orphan, especially a first century orphan. I want you to put yourself in the mind and the body of a seven, eight, nine-year-old without a support system. Even in today's world, being an orphan with no family taking care of you has significant implications, impact emotionally and and physically on a child. Okay, besides not having anyone to provide for their physical needs, being an orphan is traumatizing emotionally, going through the feelings of abandonment and worthlessness that come from not having loving parents choosing you, that are for you. Now you go back 2,000 years and there's not even a foster care system for orphans. You're literally out there on the street on your own doing whatever it takes to survive at seven years old. Being an orphan is incredibly scary. That's the fear these guys feel when Jesus says that he is leaving. It's a human fear of abandonment that is in all of us. You know, I see this every day. I know it every day because every day when I come home from work, my little girls, if they're in the front yard or in the house, as soon as they see me, they say, Dada back! Dada back! And they turn around and they start getting super excited. Dada back! And they run to me as if they did not expect me to come back. There is a joy that I have returned. And when I leave in the morning, I know that. I know that fear in them when I leave if, if they're wondering if I'm going to return. And so when I leave in the morning, you know, I say, hey, dad is going to go to work, but he's coming back. He's always going to come back. Dada always comes back. From a young age, there is a fear in each of us that no one is coming back for us. And recognizing here that the disciples are feeling like they are going to be left alone in the world, Jesus makes a clear promise and meets them in their fear. 
I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will come for you. Jesus is speaking about how when he leaves and he heads toward this brutal death, that his time away is not so much abandoning them, okay, as it is representing them. It is like being left by, that, by Jesus outside of the courthouse, okay, as he goes in to appear before the judge on their behalf. He says, I am representing you in the grave, in these grim places. And I'm not just representing, but I'm going to take your place in the grave and in these grim places. He is taking the punishment for all of our sin, representing the whole human race before God, reconciling forever all of humanity for God and burying forever our guilt in the grave. And then he's coming back physically and immediately in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' first promise here is that he's coming back. The second one follows immediately. It says, because I live, you too will live. Jesus is telling them the hard truth that he is leaving, but not to be overcome by despair because he is coming back alive. And because of that, they too will live. Not just that they would physically survive this, but that they will be spiritually alive as well. His raising from the dead turns despair into hope. See, even though all the evidence of his life from the three years that these guys spent with him points to him being the Christ, there's still doubt in their mind until he comes back from the grave and shows them that he's alive. Because the promise that he makes, okay, that we will live, it only works if he actually does come back. Without that, nothing else really matters. Nothing else in this Bible carries that much weight with it. This might be some good historical information, but these are just dead words if he doesn't rise from the grave and conquer death, none of this is worth that much. In fact, Paul says it really well in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, when Paul puts it this way. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. And your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because he testified, because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. That's real. You know, as I was studying the experience of, of the people 
in the Bible around the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus, one thing that stood out to me, okay, was in the book of Luke, when Luke is writing about the women that are searching for Jesus around the tomb, okay, and and he talks about how uh, they are are running and they are looking with this idea of, of joy and fear, Okay, in fact, Luke uses a Greek word, tramas, in this moment. Okay, and tramas is the idea of fear that creates anxiety because of not knowing what is coming next. Okay, he says these women are running, they're running for the tomb. They're they're holding this fear, this tramas of, man, I don't know what's, what's coming next. And that's fearful. And they're also running with joy and the hope of the risen Lord, they're running with these two things at the same time. Part of the reality of the Christian faith is that we walk with fear and with joy. There are times that we walk with the blessings of joy in our life. The sun is shining upon our face. Life is good. We say, man, God is good. Things are just going the way that we feel like they should go. God is providing blessing in my life. I can experience his presence and I feel the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And there are times where life feels not only like a heavy burden, but there's a fear of what is to come. When Jesus says that we too will live, this is an invitation into life. Both life, an eternal life that goes beyond the grave, okay, goes beyond death here on earth to be with God forever, and it is an invitation to find life in him right now. Full life, real life in him. And real life in Jesus means bringing all of who we are to him. So my question to us today is what are we bringing with us this morning? What are you bringing with you today? Maybe you've brought sadness with you. Maybe you've brought anger. Maybe you've brought bitterness. Maybe some of us are coming in with addiction in our life right now. Maybe we're bringing a broken heart with us as we gather this morning. Or maybe we have severe disappointment in the way God hasn't shown up the way we want him to. You know, just because we all look good on the surface, I know it's nice to show up at church and look around and it looks like everyone else has it all together. Well, if this is your first time in a church setting, just because we look like we have it all together, we don't. There's a lot underneath. A lot of us come underneath with a lot going on, a lot stirring, a lot of concern and a lot of doubt about why we don't see God showing up in the world and in our lives the way that we hope he would. And following Jesus is not about ignoring those fears that we have. It's not about acting like we are never sad or never angry or never disappointed. It's not about ignoring the reality of the pain and the brokenness in this world. The difference for those of us that know Jesus is that we know that fear does not get the last word. 
Okay, the evil does not get the last word. The brokenness in our life does not get the last word. That death does not get the last word. Why? Because he's coming back. We can be down and life is hard, but there is hope because Jesus is coming back for us. And if you're going to be a Christian, it's time to get used to running with joy and with fear at the same time. We have a God that does not ask us to ignore the fear and just focus on the joy. We have a God who gives us the opportunity to have joy because he meets us in the fear. Okay, God meets us here. When Jesus is raised, okay, from the death, the disciples here in this text, they are raised too. They are raised in their life from despair to mission. Okay, from desperate questions to powerful service for the kingdom. They've been changed in this moment to 11 guys who now will end up giving their life for the mission of the gospel, the spread of the gospel. All 11 will die for what they believe. They were willing to die because they had full confidence that when they did, they are joining Jesus in eternity. They knew they would live because of this promise from Jesus to them. If I live, oh, sorry, I live. Not if. He says, I will live. I live and you too will find life. It's the same confidence that we can find in Jesus. He is coming for us. It is okay to mourn and grieve the pain of this world. And we know that there is a life found on the other side of our worldly death in the promise of Jesus. Because I live, you also will live. Now, if we don't know Jesus, if you come into this place or you're joining us online or listening on the radio this morning, you don't know Jesus, it might make sense to feel a little bit like an orphan in this world. Because where is our hope? Who's coming back for us? But I want you to know that the family of Jesus is one that welcomes everybody in. You don't have to stay an orphan any longer. You don't have to go home today without that hope. If you're new to this whole Jesus thing, you don't have to go home with just the fear and the discouragement and the despair. This hope is for you too. It's not just for those of us that grew up in in Christian homes or or show up here and know the right things to say or, or look like we have it all together. First of all, we don't. We're just a bunch of imperfect people here. This is for you too. This is for you too. And if the invitation of Jesus is one that you want to step into today to find life in him, to no longer feel like an orphan in this world, but to know that there is a Jesus who not only loves you, but gave his life for you and is coming back for you. I would encourage you after that service today to come down front. We have a prayer team that would just love to talk with you more about what that, what, what that might mean for you. Or if you're joining us online, Go to the link, upc.org slash Jesus. We have people that can't wait to talk with you about what it looks like to be a part of the family of God, knowing that we have a, a father in God who is showing up, who is coming back for us. And when he does, he's bringing life, life to the full.
and a life that we don't have to wait for, but one that starts right now. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you. And when you said you're coming back, God, that you followed through on that promise. That you went to the grave to take the weight of our sin. God, and then you conquered the grave and came back and, and, and showed us that this is, this is something we can put our weight down on. God, this is a promise that we can put our weight down on. God, I thank you that this is a promise from you that we can give our life to. God, I'm grateful for your word this morning. Would it stir in our hearts? Would it move us toward finding more, deeper life in you, the kind of life that only you can provide? We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.